0: Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thank you so much for joining us. In this episode, Joe Biden's son Hunter has been indicted on gun charges. This has given rise to all manner of speculation on the right, including charges of a hoax by the deep state and also speculation as to whether or not Biden will now quit his bid for re-election. At the same time, the coward known as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy tries to keep the ultra-right wolves away from his door by announcing an impeachment probe. The United Auto Workers strikes against all three, all big three automakers at once. Why has the number of American children living in poverty doubled from 2021 to 2022? Off we go then. Hunter Biden, the president's son, has been indicted and charged with lying about his drug use when he bought a handgun back in 2018. The indictment alleges Biden was still getting high when he bought the gun and filled out the requisite forms. Hardly the crime of the century, but it's given his father's enemies plenty of fodder to go after him. This is evidenced by the decision by the Cowardly Lion, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, to open an impeachment probe against the president. More on that a little later. Exactly what he's done to warrant such an investigation is anybody's guess. Yet the whole scenario puts the Justice Department in an awful spot, even though they have special counsel that are dealing with some of these issues. They've indicted a former president and the current president's son, literally, at the same time. There are special counsel, as I mentioned, and the special counsel investigating Hunter Biden also says that he may not be done yet, as he's looking into other aspects of Biden's business dealings. We can establish that Hunter Biden is no model son. After all, he took up with his brother's widow after his brother died. His ham-handed attempts to make money have resulted in his father being put in a very, very tough spot. As tempting as it might be to engage in whataboutism here, I'll hold my fire on that front. The real question to me is whether the president might have a change of heart about running for re-election. It's possible. A lot of people say it can't happen, won't happen, etc. I think it's possible. It would be unseemly, at best, to be running a presidential campaign while your son is facing charges and facing trial on charges that carry a maximum sentence of 25 years. My guess is the rumblings about the president's age and acuity will get louder in the weeks and months to come, which would have happened even if Hunter Biden had not been indicted. We know that Joe Biden loves his son almost unconditionally. He's wisely stayed out of the swirling controversy around Hunter, even as a deal that would have spared him jail time collapsed. I've always thought the person who could convince Joe Biden to drop out of the race is his wife, Jill. It's obvious that right now she has to be publicly supportive of his run for re-election. Will Hunter's troubles lead her to advise him to drop out? And then there's the right-wing echo chamber. They're saying the Hunter Biden indictment is a smokescreen constructed to mask all manner of wrongdoing, not just by Hunter Biden, but by his father, the President of the United States. While we're on the subject, what exactly has the GOP got to launch an impeachment probe of Joe Biden? What exactly do they have? What hard evidence do they have? their suspicions about what the president did to help his son financially have turned out to be remarkably evidence-free. So, you might ask, what is the rationale for commencing an impeachment probe? Try Kevin McCarthy's effort to save his own bacon. No sooner had the House Speaker announced the impeachment probe Then he slithered back to his man cave in the Capitol, securing the knowledge that he had mollified the extreme right wing of his GOP caucus, at least for now. The number of times he's twisted himself into conniptions and contortions to hold on to power is utterly astonishing. Or maybe not. There are numbers of Republicans who have, to one degree or another, bent over and kissed the ring of a certain former president. And that number is remarkable. For most of them, the Rudy Giuliani's, the Mark Meadows's, the Sidney Powell's, the Lindsey Graham's, the list goes on and on. For most of them, what has it gotten them? Well, there's a very interesting take on that. Many of them, by the way, are facing criminal charges, even though Lindsey Graham apparently, I guess, would be looked at as an unindicted co-conspirator, because he hasn't been charged, but... There was evidence that the special grand jury down there in Atlanta did want to charge him. Actually, I should say Fulton County, to be completely accurate. And in the end, these things seem to be based on efforts to remain close to power, not to actually acquire it. Now, I say that, and it may sound contradictory, but the fact of the matter is, you can accumulate power while being close to power. So those who were close to Donald Trump wanted to be able to use that closeness to benefit themselves. That's pretty much the name of the game. The desire to remain relevant is an extraordinary thing to behold. It seems to drive people who in the past had a shred of respectability to toss it in the garbage. Kevin McCarthy is just such a person. He actually has real power which is kind of strange when you think about it. Yet how does he use it? After enduring, and I think some people may have forgotten about this, enduring 15 rounds of voting to get that House Speaker's gig in the first place, he threatens to allow the country to renege on its budget obligations, placing lunatics like Marjorie Taylor Greene on key House committees and launching an impeachment probe he knows going in is going to be fruitless. I hate to say this, I really do, but the same quest to hold on to power that drives Kevin McCarthy's rank stupidity also drives Joe Biden's re-election campaign. The nature of power, and I've seen this over the long years, over the long term, the nature of power is transitory. The same people who will grovel at your feet if they think your power will benefit them won't return your phone calls the minute that's no longer true. Kevin McCarthy knows this. That's why he's trying to maintain his grasp, even when it's obvious, despite his kowtowing, that it's slipping day by day. Up next, the United Auto Workers are on strike, but this time it's a strike with several differences. What do they want from the three major automakers? Find out next. This is the intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back to The Intersection. It's been a while since the United Auto Workers called a strike against any of the big three automakers. Well, that appears to have changed. At the end of last week, union workers struck three different auto plants in three Midwestern states. What's different? is that the strikes affect all of the big three auto giants. Negotiations have remained deadlocked with the UAW asking for a 40% raise over four years. Now, before you jump up and say, what, 40% over four years? That's way too much. Consider that top executives at all three automakers got raises that high. The union president, Sean Fain is talking tough and strike action is aimed at closing down plants that manufacture some of the Big Three's most popular and profitable vehicles. It's also interesting that only one of the affected plants is located in Michigan, long considered the nerve center of car manufacturing in the U.S. Aside from affecting the economic lives of the towns and cities involved, the automakers say the strikes could affect the manufacture of electric vehicles, the future of car making in the United States. Sean Fain says he also wants, in addition to a 40% raise, a cost uh, cost of living adjustments, a shorter work week, and a shorter period for new workers to rise to the top of the pay scale. Takes a little while now. The car makers have offered wage hikes of about half of what the union wants, but they have not budged on any of their other demands. The potentially problematic part of all this is Fain's vow to spread the strikes to other car-making plants if progress isn't made on a new deal. The old one expired last week, last Thursday to be exact. It should be noted that when the auto industry was hurting, and it really wasn't that long ago, the UAW made significant concessions on wages and benefits. But that was then, this is now. For the first half of this year, Ford made $3.7 billion in profits, GM made $5 billion, and Stellantis, the parent company of Chrysler, made $11.9 billion. Now, we should say, in fairness, that Stellantis' pro- uh, profit is not just on the sale of Chrysler vehicles. Any prolonged strike would hurt all sides, plus, the businesses that supply parts from which the cars are created. It may take some hard bargaining to get a deal done, but my gut tells me despite the newer, tougher UAW, they will hammer out a contract that their members, in fact, can live with. Now, before we go further, we should mark and we should mourn the tragic loss of tens of thousands of lives between the earthquake in Morocco and the flooding in Libya. These are situations that politics takes a back seat to the necessity of the world coming together to help those left devastated by these disasters. Is that too much to ask? I don't think it is, really. I think it ought to be the least the world can do. We have a lot of nations that call themselves developed. Morocco is certainly a a country in North Africa that does relatively well, politically and economically. Libya, not so much. Since Gaddafi was deposed, Libya has been taken over, some say, by warlords who actually run the country or don't run the country. Well, it's time to put all of that, all of it aside and come together to try and help and assist the bereaved, of which there are tens of thousands in Libya and thousands in Morocco, and help them and help both of those countries get back on their feet after extraordinary disaster. And finally, Paul Krugman wrote a devastating piece in the New York Times about the sharp increase in child poverty. Is there any excuse for this? This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, you're here with Mark Riley. It's the voice that you know and the information you can trust. Welcome back to The Intersection. I've always believed that the true test of any government can be measured by how many of its people are moved above the poverty line, whatever your definition of poverty is. I say this because living in poverty is no joke. Those of us fortunate enough to live above the poverty line tend to think of being poor as an abstraction, or worse, the fault of the poor person. And there's a lot of belief of that particular flawed adage. And you hear it from people, sometimes politically speaking, Republicans, conservatives, the right wing, whatever. It's the poor's fault that they are poor. Well, Paul Krugman of the New York Times has written a trenchant column on the stunning increase in child poverty from 2021 to 2022. The fact is 5.1 million children fell into poverty in a single year. That's not year to year in the 20th century. That's two years ago to last year. Think about that for a minute. And think about what it means from the perspective of a child, a poor child. There's trouble putting food on the table, so sometimes they have to go hungry. Clothes that wear out and cannot be replaced. Arguments over money between your parents. All of this comes with poverty, and children have to deal with it. In many cases, deal with adult issues because of child poverty. And as Krugman points out, the decision to put 5.1 million children into poverty was a political one. Congressional Republicans and conservative Democrats decided to gut programs that help lift kids out of poverty. These were existing programs that Congress chose not to extend. It was those programs that had the effect of lowering child poverty. This, ladies and gentlemen, is scandalous and something few Americans, I believe, ever even think about. Now, the lawmakers who did this will tell you they didn't intend to make more children poor, yet that is the result of their idiotic choices. Many of them voted for Donald Trump's disastrous 2017 tax cut. The loss of revenue stemming from that decision could have funded, for example, the 2021 enhancement of the child tax credit. Paul Krugman argues that was in part responsible for a drop in child poverty, extending that tax credit alone. It would have cost $105 billion. Now, to most people, $105 billion Is a lot of money, but actually it's a drop in the bucket when compared to other federal programs. Paul Krugman also says, There's ample evidence that money spent on such programs pays dividends in the long run. Children lifted out of poverty end up healthier, better educated, and more self-sufficient than those who remain poor. Now, that ought to be seen, in my humble judgment, as an investment. That 105 bill that it costs to extend a child tax credit, that should be looked at as an investment in the future of those children, an investment. And it pays dividends. The problem is that in many instances, people don't see the dividends. They're not told about the dividends, so they don't believe that they exist. Long story short, instead of pledging to lower the top corporate tax rate to 15%, as one presidential candidate says he'll do, how about we do something that benefits children and adults? Too much to ask? Really? Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.